welcome to the Proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua Lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person. Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. to first of all review where we were in our last set of lectures and uh, I don't know if I will do this every single time but uh, given that last week we did an introductory set of lectures uh, I think it'd be appropriate perhaps particularly to go over uh, those uh, those lectures and, and just make sure that we're all on the same page so Last week, uh, by way of introduction, we considered, uh, first of all, a working definition of the Trinity. And we will unpack this much greater in subsequent lectures, but at the very least, we want to understand going into this series of lectures and unpacking things today from a biblical perspective and then building on that from a historical perspective, that when we say the Trinity, we mean one God in three persons, three persons in one God. And uh, when we say that, we, of course, need to be able to clarify in what way God is three and in what way he is one and be able to make a distinction. Historically, that distinction has been made in, um, in speaking of the oneness of God in terms of essence or substance. Those are two words that are used to refer to the oneness of God, both alluding to some degree, I think it would be fair to say, if maybe a little too large of a general generalization, that you are speaking about the what of God. Um, and then in reference to the threeness of God, we, uh, we would, words such as, well, the word person is the one we tend to use, but in uh, historical theology, the word uh, subsistences or hypostases are, uh, were used to distinguish the oneness of God from his uh, from his threeness. Now, we, I also pointed out when it comes to a definition of the Trinity that 
uh, that the threeness of God in terms of who they are in relationship to one another and in terms of their processions is, is very important. That the names of God uh, are not arbitrary. Uh, the word son, you couldn't interchange that with father. Uh, the son is son of the father. The father is father of the son. Uh, we'll get to the Holy Spirit in a little while because it's, uh, even though the general principle holds true of the Holy Spirit, it's a little bit harder to illustrate how when it comes to the Holy Spirit. So uh, it is the, these eternal relations or the, the way in which they have their personal being that distinguishes the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So that's our working definition going forward of the Trinity. Uh, the other thing that we, we did after that then is just go through a, um, an overview of what we will touch on and to, to do that very succinctly. Uh, after the introduction, we're going to start this evening to go through a biblical uh, approach to the Trinity. And of course, in a certain sense, everything we're doing is biblical. Uh, but then we'll deal with a historical approach and then a dogmatic approach. And by the word dogmatic, I don't mean that in a negative sense. I mean that in a systematic sense, but also in a sense in which that systematic theology has been received um, by the church throughout history. It's kind of been agreed upon. It's dogmatic. And then uh, lastly, we're going to consider the outworkings of the Trinity in all of, in all of creation. And, and that includes everything. That includes redemption. Uh, that includes uh, the image of God and man, or anthropology, includes the final state. Uh, and that really is one of the ways in which this series of lectures uh, is, I think, going to be a little different than perhaps some other lectures on the Trinity, in that we want to, uh, first of all, emphasize the idea of, um, of exploring the Trinity, that there is not in the Trinity so much a mathematical codified uh, statement about the Trinity or doctrine of the Trinity that we need to just get in our minds to keep us from, from error and heresy, although to a certain degree that's true. But more than that, we want to see the Trinity as something that is beautiful and good and rich and deep and that affects everything in our lives. And I gave the example of somebody traveling to a to a, you know, an unknown land that was just full of wonders that they had never seen before and turning this way and seeing this new thing and wondering at, at it and then turning this way and, and uh, wondering afresh at some new vista of beauty. And I see, I think that that is a excellent perspective uh, and approach on the Trinity. Um, the other thing that I, I pointed out as far as emphasis is that we want to experience the Trinity that really all of what we are doing is building the groundwork of, and I think especially as we get into the end uh, lectures, should really lead naturally into the worship of our triune God, a worship that has a triune form, um, such that, for instance, we not just praise one God or even the triune God, but that we can enter into some of the appropriations or particularities of the Father, Son, and Spirit in our worship. And that really enriches our experience of God 
and it really enriches our life of faith. And again, I think that as we build towards our final lectures, this will be the case increasingly. Uh, in our second lecture, we, uh, we took a look at the knowledge of God. How do we know about the Trinity? What is it to know the Trinity? Of course, in uh, John 17, the Lord Jesus says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So it is eternal life to know God, but also in his triune nature. And I pointed out a couple of things, and, and it's sort of a balance that we need to keep, I think, pretty clear. One is that only the Son comprehensively knows the Father. We will never, even in, in our glorified state, fully know God or fully know the Father. In fact, uh, drawing from the theology of Jonathan Edwards, I suggested that we will increase infinitely towards God without ever arriving. And that just shows the depth of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Um, so there's a depth there that, you know, when we talk about the Trinity, we, when we contemplate the Trinity, we should not be surprised that at times it, it is just beyond kind of grasping, wrapping our minds around. If it causes us to just stagger in, in wonder or overwhelm once in a while, maybe more than once in a while, that's, that's all right. That's good. Um, but the other thing that I mentioned is that there is a sense in which even new believers know the Trinity. And I pointed out three ways in which even relatively young believers know the Trinity, because to know the Trinity is, is an experience. And first of all, you know the Trinity in the experience of salvation. That in fact, the scriptures are quite clear that without the illumination of the Holy Spirit to see who the Son is, that you cannot have eternal life. So if you have eternal life, if you have come to place your faith in Jesus Christ, what he did upon the cross to save you from your sins, that he has risen and that he's coming back again, you believe in the Trinity in a very important way. Of course, the very incarnation of the Son presupposes the Trinity. It presupposes that the Father has sent his Son and that this Son is is God. Uh, and we'll get into that more, but especially in the second way in which I mentioned uh, we all, to some degree, know the Trinity in, in our confession, that the basic Christian confession is Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord. And that word, as we will unpack a little bit more in our second lecture, is quite important. It has a lot of, uh, a lot of freight, a lot of significance to it in that it is referring, just to generalize, it's referring to God. Um, so in that confession, Jesus Christ is Lord, you have an experience of the Trinity. Um, and then lastly, I mentioned the, and we'll come back to this again as well today, is the baptismal formula. You've been baptized into the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And so every believer, you know, the one who first confesses, yes, I believe in Jesus, He's my Lord. That right in that, and then is baptized. There's there's at least a threefold experience of the Trinity right there. And of course, you may not be able to fully explain or prove the divinity of Christ, or uh, may not know how the three are. You know, the three are one, or the one are three, the one is three. But there is an experience of the triune God. So, 
We also uh, took a brief divergence. I don't know if you remember that, but we, um, we, we considered how the doctrine of the Trinity of God relates to other aspects of the doctrine of God. And um, I suggested, and this is something that you can take or, or, or and just kind of mull over in your mind, but I suggested that maybe within systematic theology, the doctrine of the Trinity ought to lie between the incommunicable attributes of God and the communicable attributes of God. And whether or not you agree fully with that or not, I hope that at the very least, by suggesting that, it was emphasized for you that the communicable attributes of God, for instance, his love, his goodness, his wisdom, that these things are relational attributes. And so you're forced to ask the question, well, you know, who does God love? If, if he is love, and, and the Trinitarian answer is the Father loves the Son, and the, love, and, and the Son loves the Father. And in fact, I believe, and I'll probably try to address this at some point in our historical lectures, uh, that, that the Holy Spirit can be rightly conceived of as the love between the Father and the Son. So, um, and then we, we lastly finished off the first or the second lecture by considering the fact that uh, the Trinity may be, be perceived through general revelation. And uh, this is, and I, I argued that this is a little bit unlike. Now, there's, there's, there's debate on this point. We'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that. But I suggested two ways in which general revelation uh, speaks of the Trinity. One is by way of a, an error, not only an error, but a damnable one, which is uh, polytheism. Uh, but I argued, listen, the way that error works is it's always derived from um, and some lessening of, uh, of some truth. That's, that's the nature of error. And so you ought to, there's always a nugget of truth in error. Sometimes it's large, sometimes it's small. Um, but in the case of polytheism, it's this idea that there are other divine persons other than God. There's a the multiplicity of divine persons. And, um, and so we ought to see, you know, the polytheism of the world, a distortion of the truth of the multiplicity of God's persons, even though there is one God. And I also argued, uh, maybe, maybe it was a bit of a stretch on your minds, but I also argued from a psychological analogy that even the way we are constituted in the image of God as subjects that are able to perceive uh, um, an object, but then are also able to think about how we perceive that object is a indication or a demonstration or a vestige, probably the better word, a vestige of the Trinity, right? And it becomes quite a useful analogy because it's non-material. It's a little harder to wrap your mind around, you know, if, if St. Patrick plucks a three-leaf clover, you can look at it and go, oh, sort of three, sort of one. Yeah, but it kind of fails in a bunch of ways. Doesn't mean you can't use it, but it, it's, it's limited. Whereas analogies of things that are non-material uh, perhaps have a little bit better play in, um, in being an analogy for the Trinity. So what I want to do now is to look at the Old Testament from a perspective of do we find the Trinity in the Old Testament? And I hope you have your Bibles here this evening. 
You can turn with me to John, uh, to uh, Genesis chapter 1, which is where we will begin, uh, although we'll be touching on a number of passages. Uh, the first thing as you turn there, though, that I think by way of introduction is helpful to note is to think about the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament in general before we take a look at the relationship uh, of the Old Testament to New Testament in particular when it comes to the Trinity. And I think it's helpful to note that the, the Old Testament in almost all of its doctrines, and there may be some asymmetry, but for the most part, all of the Old Testament doctrines find their fruition and their greater clarification in the New Testament. There is a progressive revelation to what we find in Scripture. Now, uh, I, I mentioned that there is maybe some asymmetry as well as symmetry. So, you know, I think that the doctrine, for instance, just to choose one, the doctrine of justification, I think, is there in the Old Testament, but I think it's clearer in the New Testament. Um, I, you know, I think you could pick many different doctrines and, and, and say something very similar. I did mention, however, last week that I do think that the oneness of God is more prominently displayed in the Old Testament than the threeness of God, in that it's building a groundwork for us to understand, and uh, that may become more apparent uh, over subsequent weeks. So there is some asymmetry to go with some symmetry, but by and large, uh, I don't think the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity is, is unique. Uh, it has sometimes been portrayed that way. Just today, I was reading uh, an author who, in general, I mean, he, he's, he's excellent on especially the historical development of the Trinity, but he states very plainly in his survey of the biblical um, you know, proofs of the Trinity, he states that the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity is not found in the Old Testament. And uh, I, I, you know, in my notes, I've got you know, a little line wrong. <laughs> yeah. No, it is there. Um, it's not as clear as in the New Testament, but it is there, and we will we'll see this. So, uh, the first, I want to suggest three different ways in which the Old uh, Testament um, shows the Trinity, the Old Testament proofs of the Trinity. Um, so, the first one is passages that refer to God in the plural, Right? Passages that refer to God in the plural. And the first, and some of you may be aware of this passage already, is found in Genesis 1, verse 26. So it says in Genesis 1, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And then it goes on to say, of course, let them have dominion. And then verse 27, God created man in his own image there, it's singular, uh, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them, and you get this first command, be fruitful and multiply, have dominion, subdue it, etc. So the early church fathers, you know, almost right away in all of their, you know, all of their dialectic, uh, in all of their dialogue with uh, those who would undermine the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, they, they were clear to seize upon this, that this is uh, this is a plural when it comes to God. And, and there have been other theologians that have pointed out, well, maybe it's speaking about the, uh, the, the, the majestic plural, uh, as, as we sometimes have these days and has sometimes occurred throughout history, the sort of the royal we. Um, but others have pointed out that grammatically this doesn't hold. There's not a lot of 
Um, other examples of this in you know, literature from this, from this era or in the biblical literature, um, I think it's very clear as the early church fathers used it that this is speaking about the Trinity. And of course, if you, even if you go back to the beginning of Genesis 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said... And uh, if you know your biblical theology, if it is, even if it is not clear here in Genesis chapter 1, if you were just to you know, start reading the Bible at the outset from, you know, from Genesis 1, uh, we, we know that the word of God is God. We'll come back to this passage. We'll also come back to Genesis 1.26 because it is fundamental to understanding human anthropology. So anthropology being the knowledge of man that... We are inherently Trinitarian, in, in, and not just in one way. There are several ways in which we reflect the triune nature of God. And so we're going to be coming back to this when we um, look at the vestiges of the Trinity. In fact, I believe that even things like gender, family, uh, rest upon the greater foundation of the Trinity of God, although as as often is the case in these things, well, say even always is the case, when you move from Trinity into creation and all that God does, you have to be careful with your analogy and reading it back onto the Trinity. You have to be very careful about doing that and that you don't, uh, you know, you're saying things that are true. You don't transgress the analogy um, because you've got a foundation there that gets, gets played out in a lot of different manifold ways. Um, another passage that speaks about the plurality of God is in Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11 and verse 7. And this is the story of the Tower of Babel. And we read that in response to what the gathered people upon the plains of Shinar were doing, namely building a tower for their own glory, um, coming together in direct disobedience to God's command that they disperse. It says, come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So again, you have this, this idea of the plural in God. Uh, there is one other idea of plurality in God, and it's the very word Elohim. The word Elohim is a plural noun, and yet it refers to God. Now, it doesn't ref, uh, refer to God exclusively. It is also used to refer to what is called the, the divine council, the council of heavenly beings, the, uh, the, the sons of God. Um, and, and this is an important piece of Old Testament theology that maybe I'll just take a minute to unfold a bit, if you may not be familiar with it. it it's quite important for understanding uh, the Old Testament, and, and there's, there's several threads that do run into the New Testament as well. But in the, in the Old Testament, there are two ways in which God is seen to be supreme. All right? Now, there's probably more than this, but... Uh, you'll see that I have a particular referent in mind. The first way is by saying that God is God alone. In other words, there is no other God 
other than God, right? And, and you get statements like this all, you know, all throughout Scripture. There's, you know, places in the Pentateuch and Isaiah. You know, he is, he's God alone. There's no other God. And, and that is the, the conceptual idea that we tend to use when it comes to thinking about God. And, and uh, it's right that we do so. The Christian worldview, when it comes to, you know, to, to everything, is that we have a distinction that is made not between divine things or heavenly things and earthly things. That's, that's not the, the picture we see in scripture, but rather between the creator and everything else, whether they are in heaven or on earth, right? So the idea that God is supreme and alone by himself is crucial. Nevertheless, that is not the only way in which the Old Testament speaks about the supremacy of God. It also speaks about the supremacy of God by saying that God is above all other gods, Right? And you, again, you get this language a lot in the scriptures. Now, what is clear is, you know, from, from the biblical text, is that these other gods are not God in the same way as the Lord God, as the creator of all things. Um, but there's different words that are used to refer to this, if you use the word divine counsel. Uh, the sons of God is, is often used. Or... Um, or it, it's sometimes the, the divine, yeah, the divine assembly. I'm thinking of uh, Psalm 82. I'm not, I forget exactly what the words are used there, the, the uh, exact, exact words. Um, but there's lots of different reference that are used. And, and Elohim seems to refer to this in some places, All right? So you've got a plurality within God, but you, then you also have the same word being used of, uh, of the one alone God. So that's very interesting. Now, let me say one more word uh, about this before moving on. And that is that it is possible that this idea of the divine counsel in the Old Testament uh, helped provide the framework, the undergirding for understanding the son of God as one that narratively, let's be careful here, narratively emerges from the sons of God, plural, okay? That, that is that it provides uh, a yeah, conceptual framework for being able to go, oh, there's a son of God who is God, but also not God, all right? Now, again, it's important that we understand that this is a narrative uh, conceptual framework and that I am not saying Please hear me correctly. I am not saying that Jesus is one of several sons of God and that somehow he was promoted within time. You know, Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. He is the only God who has made the Father known, as it says in John chapter 1. He is very God of very God. He is creator in that great divide over all of creation, including, quote unquote, other sons of God, right? But at least you've got this, this framework that seems to be there in the Old Testament that may have been helpful for, for a number of different reasons, but to, uh, you know, at the very least to show that there was this, this God who's distinct from God, but still a son of God. You know, how, how does that work? We get, we get some of that in the, in, the new, in the Old Testament, 
in different ways. And this leads us to our the second category of Old Testament proofs, which is that there are beings, I'm going to focus mostly on one, as you will see, but there are beings who seem to be God, but not God. And the one that I'm going to focus on is the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. So I want you to uh, turn with me and we will start in the book of Exodus chapter three. Exodus chapter three. So here, Moses is before the burning bush. I'm turning there with you as you, as you turn there. And uh, it's, it says in verse two, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And so here you have, uh, as in many other examples of the angel of the Lord, you've got the fact that he is called the angel of the Lord, in one instance, and then all of a sudden, there are other names of, of God. In this case, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the Tetragrammaton, uh, often pronounced Yahweh. The Lord saw that he turned aside to see. And so this is, uh, this is not infrequent. We see in the scriptures, and I, I didn't count them today, but I, I think it's, it's more than five, probably less than ten examples in scripture where you have an angel of the Lord appearing that you would probably not be quick to say, well, this is, this is God, uh, except for that, you know, in the next instance, either through speech or the narrator adding it or a name of God in some other fashion, he, it is, he's very clearly seen to be God. And the early church fathers uh, seized on this and they were almost in, with one, you know, voice, they said, listen, this is the son of God, this angel of the Lord. This is the pre-incarnate Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ. So you have these, these beings that are God and yet, and yet not God. Let's turn to one other passage. Turn with me to Judges chapter 6, verse 11. Judges chapter 6 and verse 11. And this is within the narrative of the judge Gideon. And uh, we read, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and give us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him. It's clear it is the same person, this angel. But now he is called the Lord. Again, this is the, uh, the Tetragrammaton. Uh, and the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And then 
he responds by saying, please, Lord. So again, this is, this is just two of several examples of a being that is, seems to be not God, but, but also God. All right. And again, the, the early church fathers, I think, rightly uh, identified this person as the pre-incarnate Christ, the son. Uh, the other, the other example, or, or, you know, I'm, I'm putting some different things under categories and you can think to yourself whether the categories fit precisely or not. But the other thing that we see in the old Testament, of course, is the person of the spirit of God. Now, the big question, we'll deal with this more in the next lecture is whether he really is presented as a person in the old Testament. But there are some passages, even though most would, you know, you'd be tempted to say, well, he's, he's kind of a force. He's the power of God. He's the influence of God. He is the means by which God does things. Yet there are passages that would seem to indicate that the Holy Spirit is a distinct agent or has a distinct personality. Uh, and so take a look at, turn with me to the book of Isaiah and to chapter 63. Isaiah 63, and we'll read verses 7 to 14. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them, according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. He became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. That's interesting. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. His spirit can be grieved, all right? Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people, where is he who brought them out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. So here you've got the Holy Spirit being grieved. That's, that's something you would normally use to speak of a person. Somebody's grieved, they're, they're, um, they're, they're, they're pricked, they're, they're goaded, they're, um, they're, they're, they're consternated by something. All right? But then you also have, although perhaps not quite rising to the same level of proof, but you've got the fact that the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. Uh, there are a few other passages, but we do see in the Old Testament, at least at some level, the personality of the Spirit. Again, when we move to the New Testament, we're going to see this in much greater clarity. Uh, the third category of Old Testament proofs have to do with the interpersonal relations within God. And here we get to perhaps some of the most important scriptures and scriptures that the New Testament authors themselves used to prove the doctrine of the Trinity 
from the Old Testament. Uh, so we'll start with one. This one is not used in the New Testament, but it was used regularly by the early church fathers. Turn with me to Genesis 19, verse 24. Genesis 19, verse 24. So here, this is the story of God uh, having rescued Lot out of his uh, out of Sodom. Uh, Abraham, of course, having interceded with God, who appeared interestingly um, alongside two others at the Oaks of Mamre. So there's some conjecture about whether those three persons were, you know, were the were the triune God. I, I'm not sure it's entirely clear because. The angels also go to, um, to Sodom. And I think it's pretty clear in chapter 19 that they are angels uh, and not, say, for instance, the persons of the Son and, and the Holy Spirit. But, um, you know, that's something that you can think about that theologians have debated. But when it comes to the actual destruction of Sodom, we read, The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, verse 23, and then verse 24. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Interesting. So you've got two lords. One Lord raining from the other, the fire is out of heaven. And in fact, a lot of the early church fathers would point to this as evidence of the relationship of the Father and the Son in the Old Testament, that clearly the pre-incarnate Christ, who of course is called here Lord, he is the one who is the agent. He's the one that's doing the pouring out, but it's from the Father, the early church fathers would say. And I think this is important. Later on, we're going to discuss, discuss in some of our historical lectures um, the relationship between Father and Son. Thank you for listening to the Joshua Lectures, an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. If you'd like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. If you would like to participate in person, you are most welcome to come and join us. The early church fathers, I believe absolutely rightly, conceived of the Lord from whom the other Lord reigned was the Father. And you you can't interchange that. You can't say that the Father rained down from the Son. All right? But this is prior to the incarnation. And there are some people, I'm telegraphing a little bit where we might go, but there are some people that would say that the only order in the Trinity that has anything to do with interrelations beyond sort of how they have their their beings, that, that anything like that is not fitting except within the incarnation. And I think that Genesis 19 proves that that is at least partly incorrect. All right, well, when we get there, I'll I'll make a a series of what I believe are careful distinctions uh, in looking at that, 
that current debate, that current argument. Um, let's try a few others. Turn with me to Psalm 45. All right, so in Psalm 45, you've got a passage that is addressed to the king, but it's quite clear, both in the kind of the poetic language that's used, but also very specifically, for instance, in verse 6 and following, that it is not referring to David exclusively, right? So for instance, in verse 6, it says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And then it says, therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So here we've got a distinction between God and God. It's being addressed to this king who is enthroned and who is anointed beyond his companions, but it also refers to the God of this God. And this passage is cited, in fact, in Hebrews chapter one, which uh, ironically enough, I will be preaching on this coming week, Lord willing. But here we've got this, this interrelationship between God and God, a very clear place to find the doctrine of the Son of God and the Trinity in the Old Testament. Let's turn to the passage that is the most frequently used to demonstrate the doctrine of the Trinity in the Old Testament, and that is, do, you, do any of you know? Hmm. Psalm 110. It is, in fact, the psalm uh, that is the most frequently quoted in the New Testament. That's a little trivia piece to file away. Um, there, there are a few others that are quoted a lot. Psalm 2 is quoted a lot, but I think uh, Psalm 110 is quoted the most. At least D.A. D. Carson says so, and I think at one point I actually went and tried to tabulate it up, and, and I think that I saw he was right. He's, he's usually right. <laughs> um, but Psalm 110 says this, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And there are a few other passages here that are, that are, that are quoted as well. Like, for instance, your, verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's um, quoted later on in the book of Hebrews, for instance. But this first verse, Psalm 110, verse 1, is quoted frequently in the New Testament uh, as a clear proof of the divinity of Christ and of the doctrine of the, uh, of the Trinity. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So as one example of where this is used, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 22, Matthew 22 and verse 44. Matthew 22, and maybe we'll, we'll start reading at verse 41. Now, you know, if you have read through the Gospels, that the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are, are quite regularly trying to stump Jesus, get him to say something they can use against him, something that's maybe not quite right. Uh, well, here, the Lord Jesus turns the tables, and he's going to ask uh, a question that stumps them. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David, that's not untrue. That is true. But then he said to them, how is it then? Let's just, sorry, let's just pause and let's just, you probably know this already, but 
the idea of the Christ was not new at this time, okay? They had been awaiting the Christ because the Christ was the, the idea of the anointed one that brought in the threads of the Messiah from the Old Testament, both the idea that he's the, uh, a greater prophet in the mold of Moses, the fact that he's the son of David, who's going to be the forever king, all right? All of these culminate in this idea that they had in their minds, most of them a singular figure, although in a couple of, in some cases, maybe some of them thought of, you know, maybe there's more than one figure coming. This idea of the Christ. And they say the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I may put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Can't have it both ways, right? Either David has the authority or the Lord has the authority. And so um, by this, and, and there's lots of other examples, we have uh, the, the apostles, in this case, Christ himself, using passages like Psalm 110 to, uh, uh, to, to demonstrate the, the Trinity. Now, let me close with this for this first lecture. Um, when I was started working on this particular lecture, this was the one that in some ways, I'll admit, in some ways was perhaps the least exciting uh, not because I don't like digging into the Bible, but because the focus, uh, at, least, at least with our two lectures today, are really on sort of proving the doctrine of the Trinity, something which I already believe. Uh, you know, and, and I think we all believe. And so, you know, the idea of proving the, the doctrine of the Trinity, that doesn't excite me a whole lot. Maybe, maybe it should more. But the importance of this came to me uh, in a very important way uh, today. As I was working on kind of the last bits and pieces of this very lecture, I was at the mall and I had my Bible out and I was sitting there at a long table. It had about eight chairs and there was an, uh, an elderly gentleman. He, well, it is later middle ages, we'll say that. Um, and he, he came down, he said, can I sit with you? And of course there's lots of space. I said, sure. And he noticed my Bible out and, and he said, are you a minister? And I said, well, yes, I am. I, uh, I believe in, you know, I'm a Christian and I believe in Jesus Christ, the Lord. Um, and, and, and he said, uh, and I forget what he said, but I asked him, you know, are, do, you, do you believe in Jesus Christ? And he says, I believe in God. Okay, that's interesting. So I asked him, you know, do you not believe in Jesus Christ, the Lord? And at that point, I had no idea whether he was, you know, if he had any Christian background at all or any background in the Bible, and it became quite clear that either he was a Jehovah's Witness or he was some up from some other cult that knew the Bible fairly well and was able to point to passage and verse, and so we had an hour-long discussion about whether Jesus Christ is very God of very God, and, uh, and so really, this is, this is really important. This is really important to know the doctrine of the Trinity, to be able to prove it from the scriptures, both for yourself, that you know the Jesus who Christianity claims to worship, but also so that you can help others apologetically with knowing who Christ is. Because the sad truth is this, that without believing Jesus Christ is Lord, and by that I mean very God of very God, you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved. And so uh, I'll be praying for this gentleman, at least for, a, at least for a little while, that the Lord would use the words that I shared with him uh, to, to convict him that Jesus Christ is who he, he, is, uh, he, he is claimed to be.
Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this, uh, this delving into this, uh, the Old Testament doctrine of the Trinity. And Lord, though it is perhaps there not as clear as in the, as in the New Testament, we thank you that the apostles could, could see and could use what is there to, uh, to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, and so we give you thanks. Help us to be clear in our own minds and hearts, as well as trying to convince others of this glorious truth by which people can be saved. Thank you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Joshua Lecture Series on the Trinity. You can find more lectures by going to newantiochinstitute.com and click on the tab Joshua Lectures or by finding us on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform by searching for Proelium. That's spelled P-R-O-E-L-I-U-M. If you'd like to know more about New Antioch Institute, you can email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. Thanks very much. Have a great day.